This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Speaking this evening in this extra special Monday out of sync colloquium um, is uh, B. Joseph Prime II. Uh, do you ever use the B? Uh, my wife hates it, that name, so I never use it. Okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, uh, funny story, my father also is a B, but he uh-huh. never uses it because he and his father share the first, same first same name. Same here. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, yeah, Joe Pine is a gentleman, scholar, and, uh, and author, Sloan graduate. Um, and he's here to talk today about the mid topics on screen, but uh, Pine's latest work is not yet released. Correct. The aesthetic books, uh, which perhaps he'll allude to later today, but principally I think he's going to talk to us about the concept of the experience economy, um, which is now uh, well and truly entrenched and established. So that's me for introductions. It's all you. All right. Thank you. Um, I will mention, only because it came out of my work at MIT, I uh, have a, a master's degree in the management of technology here from 1991, and I turned my thesis into my first book on mass customization, back when I worked for uh, IBM. And then out of that flew, uh, came the experience economy, uh, which came out in 1999, and then the book that I was referring to that is just out next week, in fact, that I won't be talking much about unless you bring it up in, for questions and that, is on authenticity. Um, but what I'm going to start off with is the very basic framework from the experience economy. And that framework we call the progression of economic value, which talks about how economies change over time. That in the beginning were commodities, things that you grow in the ground, pull out of the ground, or raise in the ground, animal, mineral, vegetable. Then you extract them out of the ground and sell them on the open marketplace. Commodities are the basis of the agrarian economy that lasted for a millennium. But then, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, we shifted into an industrial economy based off of goods. The physical, tangible things that you touch and feel. So people moved out of farms and into factories to make those goods for us. And then in the 20th century, we shifted into a new economy, the service economy. We use goods as the raw material to deliver a set of intangible activities on behalf of an individual person. That's what a uh, service is. And today, 80%, economists would say, of employment is in services around the world. 80% of gross domestic product is in services. And 80% of what customers want is, in fact, the service, not the good. So what happens in the service economy is that goods become commoditized. Commoditized meaning they're treated like a commodity, where people don't care who makes them. They don't care about the brand. They don't care about the features, because they're all pretty much the same anyway. They care about three things and three things only. And that's price, price, and price. That's when goods have been commoditized. There are, in fact, two great forces of commodization in the world today. One is the internet. The frictionless marketplace means that customers can instantly compare prices from one vendor to another, and that tends to push them down to the lowest possible price. Anybody know what the uh, other great force of commodization is? Walmart. Very good. <laughs> Usually it takes a while for as long as that, but Walmart, exactly. I can remember when Walmart was this itty bitty $30 billion company. Now it's this huge $300 billion behemoth that is commoditizing everything that it has to offer. I mean, that's its raison d'etre. That's its reason for existence, is to commoditize everything so it can pass the savings on to consumers. 
Well, Walmart is increasingly getting into services, however. Food services, photographic services, optometric services, increasingly financial services, and health services. So what's happening today is that you see that services are becoming commoditized as well. Look at long-distance telephone service. They're sold on price, 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 but one of the things that happens when an industry commoditizes is that price goes down to marginal cost. What's the marginal cost of a phone call? Zero. <laughs> Right? It costs nothing to make a phone call. It's all fixed cost. And that's what the price is going to go down to. Which is why you see, the, the, of course, the rise of companies like Skype. Where if you want to talk computer to computer, it literally costs nothing to be able to do that. And eventually, that's where it's all going to go. Is all telephone calls will eventually be free. You see it also in fast food restaurants or other value pricing and even the internet can monetize services. You look at financial services, what used to cost $700 to buy or sell a block of shares with a full service broker can cost as low as now $3 with an internet-based broker. So what that fundamentally means is that goods and services are no longer enough. Goods and services are everywhere becoming mere commodities. It's time to go beyond the goods and services to the next level of, of, of economic value and that is staging experiences for your customers, for businesses' customers. Experiences, and this is the most important thing to understand, the basic thesis of the book, The Experience Economy, is that experiences are distinct economic offerings, as distinct from services as services are from goods. It's basically use goods as props and services as the stage to engage each person in an inherently personal way, and thereby create a memory, which is the hallmark of the experience. So we're shifting into an economy based off of experiences, where experiences are becoming the predominant economic offering. Where do you see that today? What experiences do you see out there? This is the interactive portion. Extravagant weddings. Extravagant weddings. How much money are people spending on, on weddings today, going to destinations and so forth? There are. You know, there are people from Japan, for example, that go to Disney World because, the, because Tokyo Disneyland isn't authentic Disney enough for that. They've got to come all the way to Disney World and fly everybody there and, and all that. Are you, are you engaged, by the way, just out of curiosity? <laughs> oh, okay. Just, right. I was going to use a different example. Somewhere like Trader Joe's, it's right. just goods and services. Buy and large commodities, but they create a very specific experience for customers of having like everything in one place and a very sort of specialized shopping experience for right. special atmosphere. And then also Trader Joe's is that, that every product has a story. You know, there's a narrative about that particular product, about where it came from and, and, and so forth. And so you see grocery shopping becoming more expensive, Whole Foods and, and, and there's another one like that. What other arenas do you see experiences in? that is, the actual Whole Foods has this, this uh, authenticating mark, the seal of authentic food artisans, or AFA. And one I know is that they have, they have uh, Balinese sea salt, for example. And the packaging has the whole story about how, how Balinese you know, harvest sea salt and, and how it gets to you here and, and, and so forth. 
And you see that more and more. And that's where you see authenticity coming in, that in the expansive economy, people you know, really desire the real from the genuine, not the fake from the phony. So you see this, this shift towards wanting things more and more authentic as we shift into an economy based more off of experiences. Another place where you see it is, think about this company here. Right? This industry is at its core, right? the coffee industry, at the core of it is what? Coffee, which are commodities. Right? Commodities are beans that you grow on the ground. And you know it's a commodity because you can actually look up in the Wall Street Journal the future price of coffee beans. And if you convert it from a, a per ton to a per cup basis, do you know how much coffee costs per cup when you treat it like a commodity? That's what they're on. It uh, actually costs two to three cents per cup. That's how much coffee is worth as a commodity. But if you grind it, roast it, package it, put it on a grocery store shelf, for the manufactured goods, you can get five to actually 15 cents per cup of coffee. If you perform the service of actually brewing for a customer in a vending machine, a kiosk, a bodega, or a diner somewhere, you can get 50 cents to a dollar per cup of coffee. But if you surround the brewing of the coffee with the ambiance and the theater of Starbucks, how much are you now paying? Right? You're college students, you don't go there as much, right? <laughs> it's two, three, four, five dollars that you can pay for a single cup of coffee. And this is, you, know, you can see this in every industry, you can see its progression economic value. Those who are on the commoditized end, the people that use those raw materials to create physical goods that gain often an order of magnitude more value from it, more value yet from the services, but always the most value you're going to gain in any chain like this is from the experience. If you create an experience around it, then people are going to value that more and they're going to be willing to spend more money on it as a result. So this is, the, the, the again, the basic framework. Often call, you know, physicists are looking for the theory of everything. You know, the TOE, the T-O-E. This is our economic theory of everything. You can explain everything uh, uh, going on macroeconomically in the world off of this progression of economic value. And to, to complete that a little bit, let me also point out that, um, oops, go over here. Thank you. This, it relates to my initial work on mass customization because I recognize that customizing a good automatically turns it into a service. To where I discovered this progression of economic value. Think about Dell as the world's premier mass customizer, where they put nothing in inventory, they make it just for you. Only when you come, get on the website or talk to them on the phone and specify your exact configuration. Then and only then do they make that and deliver it to you. So they're really in the service business of giving you exactly the computer that you want. In the same way, if you design a service that is so appropriate for a particular person, exactly the service that they need right now, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn it into an experience. My favorite example of that is progressive insurance. Progressive insurance is the automobile insurance. If you have an automobile accident with progressive, they encourage you to call them up immediately and they will dispatch a claims adjuster to the very site of the accident. These claims adjusters are in these Ford Explorers. They call immediate response claims vehicles. And the claims adjusters are literally just roaming the city just waiting for an accident to happen. And when they get to your accident, the first thing they do is they make sure you're okay. They give you a mobile phone to use if you need to call a loved one. They will um, um, give you a place to sit in the vehicle to calm your nerves. They'll give you a cup of coffee. They're brewing on the vehicle. 
and then they go about adjusting the claim. They have a laptop computer with wireless uplink to the mainframe computer where they know all the information about you, about your policy, about your vehicle, about where it can be fixed. And over 90% of the cases, they hand you a check on the spot. And on the spot. Not only that, if your vehicle can't be driven, they call the tow truck company, have it taken away to the garage of your choice. If they call it a, a um, rental car company, they have them deliver a rental car to the side of the accident so that you're driving away from this accident in a rental car that Progressive is paying for with your car being taken care of with the check in your pocket. Turning what was a horrible experience, and I'm not talking about the accident, I'm talking about working with the insurance company. <laughs> turning that horrible experience into a positive, memorable one by customizing it all for you. And it is truly mass customization. It actually costs Progressive less money. It lowers their cost to do claims adjustment that way than the normal way. For two reasons. One, everything is done on demand. There's no wasting the system. There's no shuffling the paper, no asking questions twice and so forth. And two, uh, is, is that if you have this great experience, if you're being taken care of in this, in this way, then you dispute the amount that they give you much less often and get voters involved much less often. So it actually has lower costs as a result. So this uh, progression of economic value, uh, again, uh, is the theory of everything that this is what is going on. We're shifting from a growing economy to an industrial economy through a service economy. And now we're in an experience economy, where this is what consumers value today. The subtitle of the book, The Experience Economy, is that work is theater in every business a stage. And that phrase, work is theater, is not a metaphor. I don't mean work as theater. I literally mean work is theater. That whenever workers are in front of the best of the experience, they are acting. Whether they know or not, whether they do it well or not, they are acting and have to act in a way that engages the audience, the guests of that experience. So you have experiences, we talked uh, in the earlier session there about Pike Place Fish Market, for example, in Seattle. I mean, people are familiar with, with Pike Place. When you go there, they're selling fish, but they do it with such wonderful theater. All these street theater routines, including that signature moment where somebody um, uh, orders a fish and then the worker shouts it out, all the other workers repeat it like salmon flying away to Minnesota, and then they take that fish and then they fling it, often 15, 20 feet across the counter where somebody catches it up and catches it and wraps it up for you to complete the transaction. You also have companies like, uh, we're talking about the Geek Squad. And the Geek Squad was founded in, in Minneapolis, near where I live, by a gentleman by the name of Robert Stevens, who wanted to get the computer installation and repair business. So he said, well, who better do that than geeks? So he named the company the Geek Squad, and Robert says that he doesn't interview prospective employees, he auditions them. Make sure you can typecast them as geeks. And then in costumes them, white shirts, thin black ties. The ties are actually clip-on, just in case they get caught in the printer. <laughs> they have black pants with things hanging off the pelt. And the pants are usually just a little bit too short to better to show off the white socks that are part of the uniform. They drive around these geek mobiles, black and white beetles, look like squad cards with the Geek Squad logo blazing on the side. And when they get to your home or to your offices, the first thing they do is they pull out the bag. Say, hi, I'm from the Geek Squad. Slowly step away from the computer, man. And they go by giving you this computer repair experience. Robert says that his goal is to make the computer repair experience so engaging that his customers can't wait till the computers break down. <laughs> so that's theater. Well, when it comes to theater, there's a particular framework that I think is most important. And if I were to re rewrite the experience counter or come out with a new edition, this is the one uh, framework that I would add into it. And by the way, it, it comes from a book written for technologists. Actually, Brenda Laurel's Computers as Theater, 
should be is theater, but you know, get the idea. Computers as theater, you should look that book up. Where she talks about how the, the human-computer interaction should not be viewed as an interface, but rather as a medium, a medium for experiences. And so she went back to this gentleman uh, named Gustav Freitag, which a 19th century German performance theorist, who was the first one to really think about how, um, uh, how, how plays in particular change over time and what their basic structure is. So he came up with this structure that's now given in this form, which begins with exposition. That every experience begins with exposition. Exposition is introducing you to the characters to the world that they inhabit, letting you know the context of what's going on. And then you have an inciting incident. The inciting incident is when the action really takes off. Then you have the rising action, so here things are getting more and more complicated, more and more intense. And then you have the crisis. The crisis is all of the obstacles it takes for the hero to save the day, right, where everything then comes together into the climax of the experience. Right, that's the height of the experience, the most intense, where the basic issue that is set up by that inciting incident is finally resolved. Either the hero saves the day, or he gets killed in the process. That's, that's generally the climax of the movie. Well, that's not it. Then you've got the falling action as things start to come back down again, and then finally the denouement. Denouement is a French word for raveling. And it's where you tie all the plot threads together. You, know, you sort of relive that experience, make sure everybody understands everything, and then you finally return the actors, as well as the audience, back to normalcy. It is the end of this. So every dramatic st structure needs to have this sort of framework. Every experience needs to have this sort of uh, viewpoint to it. And uh, one of the key points about this is that Freitags are actually fractals. Are you familiar with the term fractal? a pattern that you see over and over again at every level of analysis. So if you look at the uh, exposition, for example, of anything, it, does, it isn't actually this straight line, but it has the same sort of structure to it like this. It goes like that until you get to the inside incident. Think about, we talked about a movie earlier today where, where together, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark by Indiana Jones? Well, the opening sequence at the exposition that introduces you to who Indiana Jones is and what type of character he is has its own entire dramatic structure to it. That's where he's, he's in the jungle and he's trying to get this artifact and, and he finally gets to the point where he's got the, the sand on one side and the artifact on the other and he's trying to measure the right amount and he puts it on there and he thinks that uh, uh, he has uh, done it, but that's the exciting incident because of the other. Right? Then, then all hell breaks loose. He's got to escape out of there with a giant boulder coming crashing down. That's all the rising action until you get the climax as he escapes out of there, and then Belloc, the, the antagonist of the, of, of the story, takes that artifact away from him. And then the, the, the falling action is where he actually escapes from all of the, uh, uh, the Indians there. Uh, and gets on the plane and then comes back to the U.S. That is the, the denouement of that particular sequence. But that's all exposition for the entire movie. Right? So anything is actually, you know, it's, it's a lot more structured than what you see here. But every segment, basically, you're going to see a lot of movement that sort of mirrors the overall structure of it. So, so again, phytogs are really, are really fractals. And... Um, a couple of other things about it is, is how companies are using technology to be able to enhance this basic structure. So you see technology being used all today. For one, is a lot of companies, in, in, you basically break it up into these three segments also, 
is, in, in basic terms, that's beginning, middle, and end. Right? Every great story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, a lot of people have moved the beginning onto the web, for example. To, 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 to use Disney's term is they have the pre-show of the experience on the web. If you go to, to Disney World and, and while you're waiting in line, they begin to, to introduce you to the characters and everything, that's the pre-show. Well, you can move that on the web. For example, uh, movies do this very well. Because for every movie that comes out, they have to create its own website. And that website does the job of exposition. You get to see the trailer, you get to see what the characters, the actors who played them. It describes the basic plot so you know what you're going to expect when you go in there. And, and other companies do that as well. You can also, on the other side, move the post show onto the web. So you can extend the experience. Disney does that with its PhotoPass uh, uh, product. PhotoPass is you get this little card when you go uh, to uh, one of its theme parks. And this PhotoPass card allows people, professional photographers in there to take your picture in various different places. And they identify you by that PhotoPass card. So then when you go home, if you've had the entire Disney experience, you can get online. And you can see all the professional pictures that they took of you. You can also upload all the digital pictures or scanning pictures you took of your family. And then you can access stock photography. And then you can create an entire photo book with all those three different types of pictures to basically relive the experience that you, that you had in there. So that's a way of extending that experience online. So people are going to talk about it more often. They're going to, they're going to talk about it for a longer period of time. They're going to tell other people about it because they have this photo pass book and so forth. That's a way of extending the experience. You can also then use technology to enhance the live experience. Uh, for example, uh, if you go to a museum, you, know, you can often get digital guides. You know, it used to be just this, this sort of analog system. Now they use PDAs that you can use. They explain the artwork and so forth that, that, that you are seeing, they give you background information about it. Right? So a different medium for that experience. Uh, and the Kansas City Symphony has created this concert companion where you're in the seats listening to the symphony, but on this PDA they give you, you have access to information about the composer, uh, about the um, uh, conductor, about the, uh, the, the orchestra. You can even access a live uh, musical score that is scrolling across in time to what you are listening ahead of you, really, to, to, to enhance that uh, experience. And there's, there's one other way that technology has been used uh, in this flight time, and that's basically to replace the live experience, to do the entire experience inside of technology. And you'll sort of see that with video games as well as with virtual worlds like Second Life and Dare.com and Habbo Hotel and, and, and so forth. That's a way of basically replacing the entire experience with technology. And when you do that, what you're basically doing is creating an entirely new medium. And technology can create new mediums for experience. And by that, I don't mean... Um, I don't mean communication medium, but there are, there are media for experience. The original experience medium, the, the medium through which we experience things, is now plainly known as real life. Right? Real life has been around forever. That's the original technology for experiencing things. And I think the first technology that has enhanced that is actually books or reading material more generally where you can escape real life, if only in your mind, in your imagination. 
and and really that is a, a technology that that is a different medium than than the normal real life is. And basically, not much else happened technology-wise for thousands of years until finally in the late 1800s, at about the same time, we had radio and movies invented. And now they're different, these are new technologies uh, where this one primarily auditory, this one primarily visual, although with an auditory component to it, uh, where people would now go to uh, movies and weekly and would listen to the radio every day. Now, you can't imagine this time, but back in like 1929, 80% of the entire population in the United States went to a movie weekly. Imagine what a mass medium that is. I mean, that's, that's greater than, 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 than probably any better than one would watch a single television channel later. But it truly was, and, and everybody would be listening to the radio on a daily basis. And there was this new medium uh, for uh, experiences. Then in the mid-20th century came across television, and although television was a screen and movies was a screen, it was a different medium because people would design, studios would design what they, and produce what they, and script what they were showing uh, differently for television than they did for movies. With a much smaller screen, you had much more close-ups, for example, than you did in the movies where you could have faraway shots. Well, particularly in the early days of television, that wouldn't work very well. Now it's starting to work better with HDTV and, and widescreen televisions and that. And then we had this explosion beginning in the 1970s where about the same time personal computers and gaming consoles were invented. And now we could sort of go into these things with our mind and, and manipulate them and, and create new kinds of experiences. And then finally, uh, we had mobile phones and PDAs that came in. So you take this down to a, to a footprint, is probably the wrong word, it's a handprint, uh, of an even smaller screen that they had in front of us. They would provide new levels of, of uh, technology through which we could have these experiences. And then finally, the, uh, the virtual worlds that, again, we're able to access, which are more avatar-based, where you are subsuming yourself into an avatar and exploring a, a world out there. Now, we can have uh, some arguments, and actually I would like to have a little argument, or at least a discussion, about whether these are the right ones or not, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, Henry Jenkins, in his book, uh, Convergence Culture, uh, talks about, cites Lisa Gittleman in her work on, on, is it a medium or is it a delivery technology? And there's some here where we could argue over, over that. Um, and I'm not sure what the right answer is. We were talking earlier today, and somebody suggested, well, the painting and sculpture is really different uh, a media for experiences as well, versus being just part of real life, because it was something that people manipulated, and so you could call it a technology in that way. So let me, let me ask just for your reaction to that. Do you think that this is the right level of the other things? Would you say it's really the World Wide Web that is the medium, and the personal computer is the way you access it, or, or, or what? We have a microphone to catch it on the uh, recording. Uh, I was just curious where theater would go in this, or if you included it somewhere else. Well, I, I would I put theater down here in real life, like I did painting and sculpture, because it was something that you really experienced in real life. I mean, that was my thought, at least. But once you start adding in plays and if you did, then I think you would add in theater as well. You could add in, I mean, like concerts. Is that a different medium? Sporting event. Is that a different medium? Uh, is 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 the open question? And and you think it is? Uh, yeah, I would separate it out from real life. 
Yeah. Um, because I think they're I think they're all distinctive experiences that you can draw different things from, and so mm -hmm. people really are transported, as it were, by right. theater or symphonic performances the way they are by books. That's true. Would, 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 any idea? See, one of the questions is: Is there isn't a real good working definition, <laughs> yeah. you know, of what of what an experience medium is? Um, and that's what I like to I, I like to focus on and think about. I think I mean my sort of knee jerk reaction to that is anything where you could you can feel truly immersed in it. Mm -hmm. like you're you're you've removed from that sort of baseline of real life. Right. But right because it's and then one. one, one now, I use one word that people have used before, but the chief word is, is it's an other, right? It's an other, right? Is, is that if I walk into a theater and you know, the curtains come down and, and, the, and the, the, or the lights come down and the curtains opens over that proscenium, then that's, there's an other, there's something else that is happening here, you could say. Yeah. In the same way that, that good art can transport people into a, a different, I think, more of an aesthetic that, or, or more... Um, or, uh, absorption than immersion, but you know, but I think there's a, a possibility there. Well, those are interesting questions. I mean, it's certainly coming from something like television, where the whole concept, I don't know if you're aware of engagement, is getting a lot of sort of media play. Mm -hmm. um, and it, talking about the depth of those experiences when people are experiencing the same thing, but the depth to which they're experiencing right. it. Um, so, I mean, probably this this would be different for everybody, right. and it would it would include different things in different sort of concentrations. Yeah, and I, I would relate to depth and level of immersion as well. You know, yeah. television is not as immersive as a movie is, right? Where the where the lights are out and, and you've got you know where you, you like I never watch television without reading something. <laughs> you know, is that I'm always got something in something. I'm sort of in partial attention to it. Whereas if I'm sitting there in a movie, you know, the only other attention I'm giving is to, is to the people next to me, or if somebody interrupts it and so forth. So in that sense, it's more immersive. Same thing with if I go to a ball game. Uh, as a spectator, I'm not bringing something to read with me, and so I'm giving it more of my full attention. So it's somewhere between attention and, and, and immersion, uh, um, I think, is that depth that you're, that you're talking about. Any other thoughts or comments? by just what you said right at the end when um, television and radio have become part of what I would argue real life they're not immersive experiences we sort of have become better tuned to them, we're more familiar with them it's not something that sort of jolts me out of my right. I just find this distinction that you know the way we have background music on all the time right. people leave the TV on while they're cooking and I'm just wondering can you still make these distinctions or does this keep is it more fluid and it changes right. and blurring so that, that's something that's confusing right. me about this neat diagram. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think those, are, those are, again, considerations uh, of the blurring of it together, uh, of doing multiple things at one time, um, you know, is, 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 is very related to it. Well, I'm just kind of wondering, like, with your previous diagram, what we were talking about Starbucks coffee and, you know, these sea salts from, like, other ends right. of the world, where would you qualify, like, that experience, like, the media which causes an experience or like being in the physical space of Starbucks? Right. Well, see, that, I don't know where that falls in the spectrum. Right, that, that all fall in real life. I mean, that is me walking around and experiencing things, interacting with people, going to different environments, and that's why I sort of lumped that together with these are the day-to-day -day experiences uh, that we have where my, my body, right, is the primary uh, mechanism 
by which that with books it's my mind it's not my body anymore and once you get into these it gets less you know, in television radio movies my body tends, tends to be still right as i'm ten, you know, I mean, there are exceptions because you walk around with, with uh, earplugs in and that but um but you, you know, your body isn't a part of it as more is it? you you're, it's more the the um you know, the, the audio and visual senses that are taking part Right, well, that music part is moving my body. But it's using all these sort of like the same right. functions of right. like film and, and like screen media that you're in the audio visual. Right, you're presenting things and it's doing sounds and so forth. Uh, but certainly the body is an integral part of that and of, of that uh, of an amusement park or a theme park uh, ride. Um, and so you know, these, I think, are the are the right sort of of uh, considerations. I think that it's all uh, pretty much depends on the level of participation because you can have media without experience and you can have experience without media. You can have uh, your right. personal computer turned on and it's actually do not, uh, you don't have to pay any attention to it. Or view is pure information. You know, like a newspaper is not an experience medium, it's an information, a communications medium. A personal computer can be as well, just merely uh, information or communications versus experience. And that's why I think that. Actually, the term experience media is, is, I think it's not very transparent to me. Mm -hmm. Not very useful. I don't think so, but it's, I don't know. I think it's, it's kind of difficult to, um, to describe it properly. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, I think it pretty much depends on the participation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's another hand raised back there. I'm just not sure that I, I mean, kind of building off of this last comment, I'm not sure exactly what, like, I don't really know what's going on here. I mean, I followed <laughs> your argument, like, through the whole thing, was with you, and then, like, you hit this, and I, I just don't understand what you're trying to prove with this. Like, ah, okay. I mean, okay, experience economy, I'm there, but I don't understand what this is trying, what you're trying to, to prove with this, or what you're... Okay, that's good. Let's good. Let me, so let me back up a little bit, and, and, and talk about it a little more, which is... Um, that all the experiences are not a new economic offering. They're only newly identified. Experiences have always been around. You know, we've always had plays and concerts and sport events, troubadours, and so forth. Uh, are all you know, experiences that have always been there. Uh, but one of the things that is new, uh, well, two things. One is the fact that the economy is becoming based on it. It's becoming the predominant economic offering. And two is the fact that we can bring technology to bear and different media to bear on those experiences. So one of the things that I've worked with corporations on this is to recognize that you've got to re realize which of these media do you want to play in. And increasingly, people are playing in all of these. That they, that they realize that they have to take their content, if you, if you like that term, and spread it out across different media because people are going to want to interact with it in different ways. That you can no longer be sure that you can reach everybody that's out there with a real life experience if you ever could, or with television. You know, again, like movies, back in the 1950s and 60s, we had three or four channels. Everybody watched them every week. If you wanted to reach people, you could get on television and you reach everybody. That's not the case anymore. So it's fragmented in that sense is that we spend more and more time in these different media. More and more people are spending time in virtual worlds, for example, 
Many people are spending up to 40 hours a week online as an avatar, as opposed to being their own person in real life. Do you need to reach those people anyway? Do you want to provide experiences for, for them to interact with, which is why you see more and more companies going on to Second Life, uh, for example, to be able to reach people in that way. And always remember, you know, as opposed to you, you folks here, I'm always, my perspective is always comes from business, right, from the world of business. I talk to companies, and I talk to companies about how to create value in their economic offerings. So that's always the perspective that I am, I am bringing to things. The other Uh, 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 issue here is is to bring to mind what Henry Jenkins talks about again in conversion culture about transmedia storytelling. So one of the reasons why I talk about experience media is to say to recognize that if we have transmedia storytelling, here are the options for the different media of which you can do that. Now, are you all familiar with transmedia storytelling? Pretty much, right? Uh, and so I mean, he gives the example of the Matrix. And, uh, the, and I love that example where you know, if you go to the second movie of The Matrix, right, The Matrix uh, Reloaded, then there are characters there that are introduced as if they're, they're part of this. There is no exposition on them. They're just dropped in there and you're expected to know who they are. Well, you only know who they are if in between the first movie and the second movie you uh, um, looked at the anime shorts that they came out with or you read some of the comic books introducing these or you played The Matrix game. Uh, that was out there. Then you learn who these characters are and so forth. Those are all different media at which you can gain knowledge and experience the entire Matrix universe, uh, if you will. And, and what transmedia storytelling is, a way to think about it, is where you take these different segments of the um, um, of the, of the, of the dramatic structure and you move them to different media which means that there's also breaks in them. Where you have this is online, for example, and then you go to a, a movie that begins the inciting incident of your exposure to the, uh, you know, the Matrix franchise, for example. And then your rising action has different elements to it in different uh, uh, parts. Uh, and the crisis, again, has different elements where it's being moved across these different media, where every segment may be a different media is the basic idea of a description of what I think transmedia storytelling is all about. Where there's breaks in the action, where this is a highly individual thing that everybody puts together their own overarching dramatic structure for something. Whether it is the Matrix, whether it's the Lord of the Rings, where you can go to New Zealand and experience where things were filmed, you can play the game, you can read the books and, and so forth. All of those uh, create this very individualized Uh, and fragmented uh, uh, flight talk diagram. Because one of the reasons to introduce uh, the experience media is to begin thinking about, uh, again, options for transmedia uh, storytelling. Yeah? <laughs> I'm also like a little confused in terms of like what's being like sold here? Are you talking yep. No, I don't mean like in a negative like consumer sway. I mean like, is it that, um, like we're talking about the matrix, the matrix is it, so then like the story is the thing that's being sold, that like the travel, that keeps you going across different media, or the experience of experiencing the story is the thing that you're valuing most? Because you're talking about progressive insurance, for example, like the thing that, the thing which is like eventually the product is the, is the insurance, and right. that's what's going to be money off, as opposed to like having everyone have a good time, that's just a, 
the form through which people experience that commodity. So, so like, where is like the separation between like your form and content here? I, I guess I'm just kind of confused. Well, it depends. It depends on every case. But increasingly, the experience itself that is the economic offering, it's the experience itself that is being sold. Um, where, in particular, that is you know exactly the case. What what differentiates experiences as a true economic offering is whether you are charging for the time that people spend, basically an admission fee or a membership fee. So you know with, with uh, basically, you, as a company, again, you are what you charge for. If you charge for undifferentiated stuff, then you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things you can touch and feel, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But if and only if you charge for the time that the customer spends with you, then you're in the experience business. So you go to a movie, you pay an admission fee, that's, you're paying for that time, that you're paying for that experience. Same thing, go to a stadium and, and, and see a spectator. Same thing, go to a, a theme park and pay an admission fee to Disney World and for the entire day-long experience that you, that you have inside there. So in those cases, that is what is being sold. In a case like Starbucks or Progressive, they're using the experience to generate demand for the core offering, which is, which is the coffee that they have for sale. And so you see that going on because anytime you have one of these economic shifts, what happens is the companies give away the next level of value in order to better sell what they have today. So you have manufacturers that get into the service business to better sell their goods. You have service companies like Progressive getting the experience business to better sell their services and so forth. But eventually what happens is companies have to align what customers value. And that, in this case, that means charging explicitly for, for the experience. And, and again, the basic point here is to open up the, the, the possibilities for what different possibilities are there for using technology and using media to gain value in the experience economy. Right? That's the basic thrust of, 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 of what, it, what it's about. Fans to connect to each other, they can play trivia online. Um, I'm just offering this as kind of the counter example of the experiences um, being extended through technology now. Some of the things are saying are a little jarring to me. So, um, yeah, well, how, how is it? I mean, again, it's a way of using technology to enhance that live experience by connecting you to, to other people and gain more information about the background of what's happening in front of you. It's not unlike the concert companion, but it does have that. It's a different kind of experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. But it's just, it's, it's all, all that that's doing is extending the existing experience. Right. Like it's not, you know, it's not adding anything new. I mean, it's, I mean, it's adding interaction between the thing. My, my, my problem with your, with your hierarchy is that it, to, to the gentleman that spoke earlier, experience, I mean, you're talking about interactivity. I mean, you're talking about deeper levels of interaction. I just, I mean, like the experience just, it sounds like a catchphrase to me. I mean, there's mm -hmm. nothing, I mean, reading a book is just as experiential as being in a virtual world as, as playing a video game. They're all experiences. Whether you're using them with your body or your mind or whatever, that's just, I mean, those are just details, but they're all experiences. So I just, the, the whole, 
that, that whole hierarchy that you were trying to mark the, the media? doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. The, the, they are experiences, right? They are all experiences, exactly right. But they are they're, they're very different kinds of experience. I mean, reading a, reading a, well, reading a book is one where your, your own mind and your own imagination is what is creating that experience. Right, which is it's 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 which is different than going to a uh, a play, for example, where your eyes are the primary medium and your ears come into play more. Your you know the, the eyes reading the page is, is not have, is not creating the same kind of experience as your eyes watching things visually change in front of you. So right? how does this create value for your clients? Uh, <laughs> It, it, well, it creates value by, by giving you new options that, that did not exist previously for, uh, for creating those experiences, for thinking about how you might engage your customers in different ways. Because increasingly on that, in that previous chart is that more and more people, particularly younger people, are spending more and more time at the top end of it and less and less time at the bottom end of it. And there's many companies that are not up there. At that, but at your that example topic. of Starbucks as the like you know penultimate example of the experiential coffee is a completely real world experience. Yes. So I just don't understand how you're saying that by the kids at the top of the hierarchy are somehow like more experiential than the people in the real world. Well, I'm not saying more experiential. I'm just saying, I and mean, you can you can debate that, and I think it depends on the person, it depends on the experience. But they're spending more time up there and spending less time down at those at the bottom. But, but what about people who play video games in groups, where they're right. they're interacting with a with a, a video game, but they're the only reason that they're doing it is because they're with five of their friends in the room. Right. Right. What? Well, but, but then you've got what you've got is an, an experience that is combining the real life experience with that uh, uh, the gaming console experience. That if you didn't have both of those, it would be it would be a less effective experience. If they were dispersed in the five different places, and there's people who do that as well. And right now they're talking with headsets, uh, or they're talking with instant, effectively instant messages each other, whether in game or out of game, that they're doing it. And they're layering on those experiences in that way, but they want to have a more uh, immersive experience. They're going to have a more engaging, and engaging is a, a key word you brought up earlier, more engaging experience in the same room live with that. So should people, I've, offered, I've worked with companies where I tell them you need to create places where people can play games together for that exact reason. Which is which is not being done commercially, and it can be done in, in, in people's homes. So, okay, I'll come back. Okay. Uh, can you just backtrack to that slide? That's sure. Confusion? And, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just you need a new slide. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it takes a long time to build, too. Just could you clarify if you presented this to us as a hierarchy? No, no, it's no, it is not a hierarchy. All this is 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 time. It is right. This is just time on here. The, the, this has always been around. This is the first technology. This is the 1800s, the 1950s, and, and so forth. So it's only how long has it been around? And to sort of show you that this is you know, this is a hockey stick. There's more and more technologies, more and more possibilities for uh, creating experiences that existed for thousands of years. Well, then I would feel, I guess then my response to this is things like telephone and theater that you've chosen to put in real life and not include in this chronology of experiential media, when those sort of 
were born, they were a form of experience. And so I feel like then, I just want to say that this seems incomplete to me. Okay, so you were saying to sort of write off something like the original telephone before it became mobile as a real life thing, because I'm sure when it came out, it felt... It was an experience. When the telephone came out, it was an experience, because this was something people were not used to. Today, it's merely communications or information. It's not... Uh, but, but it can be an experience so medium. I mean, talk about 900 numbers and so forth. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so this is a snapshot of today. I'm just trying to understand right. this slide. This is one. Okay. Yes, this is basically time is the axis here, and these are new experiences that are more recent in time as, as we go up. Right, that's the basic thrust of it. Well, all right. So then my comment is I feel it's a little incomplete and I feel okay. like it's dangerous to sort of throw the telegraph and telephone, <laughs> um, you know, uh, theater out and just subsume that in real life when you feel, you know, there's, there's something going on there that sort of bugs me because I feel like depending on how these different things are deployed, those can be very um, experiential or immersive in the same okay. way that television can be. All right. I appreciate the feedback. Which is what I'm looking for. I didn't. Okay, before I was confused, and now I think I'm not confused. So, um, so. So I got this one. Yeah. Okay. Right, but I think I'm thinking, and you right. tell me if it's right. Okay. Or ish. Ish. ish okay. Is right. okay. <laughs> um, so, we, Henry, and and a lot of people here do a lot of talk about like trained media storytelling, right. and um, so that's kind of the, put that over there, and then there's um. Uh, so the and it's getting to the point where the this experience a lot of service um, industries and goods industries are now becoming more like experience industries. So you're talking about how companies can create a value by creating transmedia experience. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. That that makes perfect. And, and just to add, and, and just to add a little structure onto yeah. what a transmedia storytelling experience would be. Okay. Right is one that crosses these boundaries. It uses multiple of these and takes that flytog and fragments in a way that you can have different things at different times and put them together in different ways and everybody's individualized and so forth. So part of it is to is to you know, provide a little structure to that concept and and okay. thinking about it. what I mean what. I often tell people that, that I should have named a business frameworks are us. Right? That's what I do, is I, as I look at things and try and build a framework that describes what's going on in a way that hopefully you can then use to, again, create value as, as a business. So in trying to understand the experiences that, that are, are being mediated and are being sold to consumers, I'm trying to, if in a transmedia storytelling work, is, are the experiences the consumer's individual encounters with the story, or with is it the individual parts, or is is there something about the experience of the entire product, or of, of the entire good, or the brand, or whatever is being being right? different ways and different things. So, so a couple. One is, uh, is, from a company perspective, the experience is the entirety. It's the, and I do it's the economic offering that they are selling. From an individual perspective, the experience actually happens inside of me. 
Okay. Right, which is why no two people can have the same experience because it's my reaction to the events that are staged in front of me, the stimuli for the experience. So the experience actually resides inside of you, and so, and so what the company has to do is they have to reach inside of you and create that experience, and that's the engagement. That's the link between me as a company and you as a consumer is creating that engagement that, that creates that experience inside of you that therefore has a memory. And if it's not, if there's no memory of it, then it's more than an experience. Does that engagement, and the, the, the way you use that in trying to think about um, non, non-commercial experiences, I've had with some of these, there's something about uh, an idea of a give and take that feels like a part of that, I and mean, the idea that participation is a part of creating these experiences. When I, I get something from it, and the more I get right. into it, the more I get out of it. That feels like that's some of the most intense experiences I've had. Yes. Is there, are there, are there hooks for that? Is that, is that a part of it? Is this part of the changing the landscape in this experience economy? Yes. Let me, uh, let me, let me, let me draw a little framework here. All right. And this is the same one that came up in, in, in the previous session. Uh, which is that with experiences, basically you can have an experience that, that you absorb inside of you, right? So you, that it's out here, you see the sights and sounds of it, or you can have an experience in which you are immersed. And then you have an experience that is fairly passive, or one that is fairly active. And that defines four different realms of the experience. Where the, the, up here you have entertainment experiences. So this is going to the movies, watching television, going to a concert, or play, where you passively absorb in the sights and sounds that are presented to you. And that's where the engagement happens on an entertainment basis. If you actively get involved, that's where you can learn from it and have an educational experience. That's why, for example, I want the interaction here because I both of us are going to learn more the more active we are versus you, just, you know, sitting in the seats like this and, and just passively uh, uh, doing it. When you're actively immersed in another environment is when you can have an escapist experience. So here you're going from one place to another and you're doing things there. So I, I, I um, you know, watch golf on television entertainment. I go play golf is, is escapist experience. And then finally, when you're passively immersed in an environment, is an aesthetic experience. Spelt with an E, so I can call this my full E model. Uh, but also, the joke works even the second time. No, also because the, uh, um, I don't mean aesthetics with an AE, which is the philosophical study of beauty. Right? Here we're talking about more of the architectural term where they create an aesthetic environment, a place that people want to hang out. That's what Starbucks primarily is, is an aesthetic experience. Or go walk in the Grand Canyon or go to a, a, a horticultural gardens and so forth. That's an aesthetic experience, a place that you just want to be. Now, the best experiences are those, in fact, that have elements of all four of these, and this is what I think you were just talking about, but what I call it is hit the sweet spot in the middle. And ideally, what you want to do is you want to hit the sweet spot in the middle. You want to have aspects of all four of those, and I think you can relate, relate that also to uh, Sissette and Mahaley's uh, concept of flow, where you're in the flow, where you don't, you don't even know where it is or couldn't identify it, it's just all happening, uh, and, and those are the most engaging experiences that you can have. Make sense? Yeah. And let me go back here. Oops. Okay. Right, this is the one that I went through. There's one more. There's one more key framework I want to talk about.
uh, and this will be the first time anywhere I've talked about this framework. Uh, and, and so it's, it's what I want your feedback on. And this framework has no small aspirations because uh, it purports to describe the entire universe. <laughs> In fact, it, 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 it describes beyond the universe. And what the framework, it actually um, comes from thinking about, if you think about what the universe is, is the universe is a true trinity. A trinity. What differentiates a trinity from a triad is that if you, with a trinity, if you take away any one element, you have nothing left. You know, there's no, you can't have two. It's all three have to come together. And the universe is made up of this trinity of time, space, and matter. And time, space, and matter. You know, the space-time continuum in which, in which things happen. That's, and you can take any object that occurs in space and you can, you can draw back down to where that object exists in the here and now. Right? So, so the universe, again, is made up of, of time, space, and matter. Well, there's this really interesting book. You know, I brought it with me as sort of an object lesson because this is the book that changed my life. Uh, this is the book I read as a strategic planner at IBM uh, that introduced the term mass customizing. Stan Davis actually lives here in Boston uh, and, and coined the term mass customizing in his book, Future Perfect. I read that at IBM and said, you know, that explained everything that I saw. I got that into our, our, our plans and strategies and then um, um, uh, spent my entire time at MIT studying mass customization to, put, to do as my thesis and then turn it into my first book. Whereas this other chapter in here, uh, before the one on mass customizing, uh, called No Matter. No Matter. And he says in here, that um, in a new economy, value-added will come increasingly from intangibles, things whose importance does not lie in their material existence. That's what he meant by no matter. Things that were intangible as opposed to tangible. Well, in this new ex economy is now that we know, we know it as the experience economy. But make this a little smaller to think of, well, if there's no matter if intangibilities, and where would you put no matter on here? As an extension back. Right? So the, 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 the universe, the real world as we know it, up here, but if there's matter, then there's no matter. What's the difference between matter and no matter? Well, basically, to use uh, uh, Nicholas Negroponte's distinction, matter is about atoms and no matter is about bits. Right? Real world physical material matter is atoms. And then immaterial, no matter, is bits. Well, if there's no matter, then there has to be no space. What would that be? Well, space, of course, is real, and no space is virtual. Now, there's no matter and no space, and there has to be no time. And this is really the most difficult one to think about what it means, but time is linear and no time is nonlinear. Time is sequenced out, spooling in front of you. But with no time, basically we can have sort of random access to what is going around. We can jump around, we can hyperlink, basically, is what no time is about. And what this then defines is not one universe, actually, but eight universes. 
right? That's a cube that has eight different octants, and that's what I'm calling the multiverse. The multiverse has eight different octants. What is that? What does that mean? Well, let's take these one at a time. Time, space, and matter. Linear, real atoms is where the real world is. Now, this is the universe as we know it. We have those real life experiences in there of time, space, and matter. The opposite of that is no time, no space, no matter, and that is virtual world. Right, so we are an avatar. We go into Second Life, or we play a, a virtual game that is not in real space. It's virtual space using bits instead of atoms to be able to create that in a way that we can jump around, teleport. We can go this way. We can go that way. It isn't controlled and spooled out in a linear way like plays are, for example, or sporting events. There is that we have control over it. And so it's nonlinear in that sense. That's what a virtual world is. So those are sort of the two endpoints, the real world and the virtual world. Then another one is time, space, no matter. So I realize how hard this is to sort of visualize, particularly the first time you, you, you've seen it. But time, space, no matter means it's linear, it's real, but it's based around bits, and that is augmented reality. And if we're in augmented reality where people are carrying, uh, you know, are using computers and using technology to enhance their real world experience, whether that is carrying around a GPS system or whether that is a wearable computer uh, uh, that you have integrated into your clothing that, that people at MIT are working on and so forth. But augmented reality is adding the, the, the digital technology onto that real life experience. That's what it is. The next one, bless you. <laughs> You're welcome. Is uh, time, no space, and matter. So linear, virtual, but has real atoms, and that is augmented virtuality. Right. So we had augmented reality. This is the first one I've had to make up a term. <laughs> right. The other ones are all, all terms that we're all familiar with. This is augmented uh, virtuality, and. Uh, here what we're talking about is, is like haptic technology, physical technology uh, in, in, in matter sense, but it is enhancing your experience of virtual worlds. So think about the Wii controller, for example. Wii controller is something that you hold in your hand. It has matter and materiality to it, but you're using it to play a virtual game, like bowling, for example. And, and this is the controller that you're using. So now your, your body is involved in that. And so you're augmenting the virtual experience. And people you know, that play, you can play Madden football, for example, where totally digital, or you can get physically involved in that and use the Wii controller to do it, or to play tennis, or to box, or whatever it is. So this holding of that matter object is augmenting what was before a purely virtual experience. Just like with augmented reality, you're augmenting what was a purely reality-based experience. So augmented virtuality is, is, is what I call that. The next one is time, no space, no matter. So linear experience based on time, but in a virtual space with digital technology, and that is a mirror world. Are you familiar with David Gruenter's book, Mirror World, came out in 92? 
he actually he coined this term, and, and, and it was incredibly prescient. But what he basically said, he's a Yale professor of computer science. He said the technology in the not-too-distant future, and we're already there, you know, less than 15 years from, from when he wrote the book, uh, would, would create what he calls mirror worlds where you'd be able to use software to simulate what is going on in reality and view it in, in a different light. And, and we, all, we see that already happening today, for example, with Google Earth. Uh, there is a great article of Technology Review. I don't know if all of you read Technology Review, but the, I think it was the June issue of Technology Review had an article that was basically Second Life meets Google Earth, and that's what's going on. And that's what a mirror world is, where you can actually create things that are data feeds from the real world to create a virtual representation of that. So, for example, in Second Life, the National Oceanics and, and, and Aeronautics Administration, NOAA, has created a real live weather, not real live, it's in, it's in Second Life. This is what the words get you, right? But it has created a real time weather map of the United States that's about you know, the size of this room. And you can walk through this weather map. And if there is a rainstorm over Boston in the real world, then there is clouds and rain in Second Life over Massachusetts in the virtual world. So it's tied in. Eventually, they perceive you can add haptic technology in that. So if there's thunder going on, you can actually feel that in your legs as you, as, as you walk through it. Or you know, feel the heat of the sun, for example, in, in Nevada in the, in the sunny portion. That's a mirror world. That's where you, it is tied into real time. So it has a real time data feed. Uh, and the, in the um, Wimbledon in June, the tennis tournament in, in um, England, IBM created another site inside of Second Life where they had a tennis ball. There was a little lag, it wasn't quite real time, but basically there was a tennis ball that was replicating the exact match of where that ball went during that match in Wimbledon using uh, 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 cameras and then converting to digital technology so you could actually be watching it live and then you go to Second Life and you can see if something was actually in or out because it would be replicated in Second Life and you can get that image of whether it was just on this side of the line or just on that side of the line. Right? That's a real world tied into the real world. And you're going to see more and more of those applications. So people that are working on uh, applications where, where um, you can go inside of, of Second Life and you can have Google Earth uh, and be able to see real buildings inside of there and what's going on again in, in, in real time there. So that's, that's a mirror world. No time, space, and matter, nonlinear real atoms. So here well, we've got the real world, we've got atoms, but now it's nonlinear. So it's, 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 you've got this ability to be asynchronous, to jump around inside of it. And this is the one I had the hardest time coming up with a name for. Uh, but finally decided to call it warped reality, which is a, a term that has some currency. But warped reality, it, it, it would, if you could imagine what it would be like to have teleportation. So you're in one place and then you instantaneously jump to another place. That's, that's what warped reality is. So you've got this ability to, in the, to jump around inside the physical world. Now the closest things like that are like imagine you're having an experience of, of Boston. And you're going, you know, you're, you're doing the Freedom Trail. You're going into different places, but then you jump down to the T, and you go on subterranean, and then you move around and you pop up some other place. That's like being teleported. So if you view your experience as the as the as the experience of the Boston area, you know, above ground, that that in essence you're being teleported from one place to another through the T. 
Uh, even get into a taxi uh, in, you know, in Manhattan, they have that same sort of effect. Or in um, San Diego, there's a company called uh, Tour Coupes that has GPS three-wheeled uh, um, 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 motor vehicles. So you're going around this vehicle, but what happens is that when, you, when GPS recognizes that it's in a spot that it has information about, it will pop up and begin telling you about this part of San Diego and the heritage and what's going on there and so forth. So your experience of that is segmented by these times in which nothing's going on, and that's basically you know, the, the warped reality. Uh, the, another example is there's a company in, in Simsbury, um, um, Connecticut called Mark Brady Kitchens, and they have what they call shopping crews. When you're building a new home or redecorating your home, they have this limousine that picks you up at your house and then takes you to all the various places where you get to figure out what it is that you actually want in there. So those places are the physical places that you're going, and when, when you're going in between them with this limo, you know, that's the warped reality. That's the part that's not part of the, of the main experience. So that's basically what I'm talking about here. Again, it's as if you're being teleported from one place to another. The next one is no time, space, no matter. So here you've got bits in real space and nonlinear, and this is alternate reality. You're familiar with ARGs or alternate reality games. That's what's going on here is you've got your, as a, as a person in real life, are having this digital information that's being exposed to you in a very nonlinear fashion. Um, if you're familiar with the I Love Bees alternate reality game that, that Microsoft used for Halo 2, for example. Uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, folks created one for, uh, for AI, the movie, and that. That's basically so you, you've got faxes, you've got websites, you've got telephone calls, you've got all these different things. You've got, you're making these connections with other people that are allowing you to basically solve this puzzle. And that alternate reality is one where you're jumping around with digital technology, but based off your real life things, information that is, that is coming into you. So that's an alternate reality. Uh, the next one, I think the last one actually, is no time, no space matter. So here are physical atoms, but in the virtual space with, 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 in a nonlinear way. And this is what I'm calling real virtuality. Real virtuality is you take something that did only exist virtually and you make it real. So for example, you can go into Second Life, you can go into a Reebok store, and you can... Um, um, define and customize a pair of shoes for your avatar to wear. Well, you can also then have Reebok make those shoes for you in the real world and ship it to you and wear them. Or you can go to legofactory.com and create a virtual representation of an entire Lego model. And then Lego can analyze that and ship you the exact bricks it takes to be able to make that. And you can uh, uh, build that design in the real world that again existed only in the virtual world. Or you can use a um, um, fab, right? Uh, Neil Gershenfeld uh, here at MIT is, is, is promoting and creating these, these you know, personal fabrication environments where you can design something virtually and then, you know, like a 3D printer, have it made, have it uh, physically created layer upon layer. And that's what I'm talking about, about a real virtuality. 
So those are the eight things, and, and I want to have, you know, I'm going to give you a few more details around each one, just begin thinking about it, and then have whatever discussion you want to have. And your first question may be, well, okay, what do I do with this? We might have about five minutes. Right. Okay. Well, then, and then, well, that's right. I was thinking, I was thinking, all right, all right. Well, then I'm going to go through these real quick. Uh, and, 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 but the basic answer to why we do this is I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm not sure yet, but I think that there is a lot here to be able to think about. So real quick, I'll just go through the real world is about physicality. You know, it's about the physicality of it. The augmented reality is about enhancement to that physicality. Augmented virtuality is about sensory feedback that you get with haptic technology and so forth. The real world is, is what Gil Enter talked about is topside, being able to see the whole picture at once, being able to look at a whole weather map all at once versus having it to be you know, basically too much information for you to in, incorporate. And topside is his way of saying this, this general information. Then with warped reality, it's about transportation, again, moving from one place to another. With alternate reality, it's about the connections that you make between information, between people. With real virtuality, it's about instantiating something that existed only virtually in the real world. And then uh, the virtual world is about exploration. About exploration. So then, uh, let me sort of skip this. Uh, actually, it's easier to do it this way. Uh, this is the uh, you know, fable technology. Is I think for each one of these, there's a technology that people have talked about in science fiction or in the real world that relates directly to it, and maybe actually maybe an easier way of thinking about this. You know, the technology in the real world is real life. The experience me and I talked about with augmented reality. Think about the Borg. I don't know if you're familiar with the Borg. That's that's the height of augmented reality. With augmented virtuality, think about the hollow transmitter that allows virtual objects to move around in the real world. Uh, with mirror world, it is actually what Gerlenter already talked about and named as a mirror world. With warp reality, uh, I, I thought about, um, uh, no, it, it, well, it's basically it's teleportation, you know, the, the, the transporter in Star Trek fame that allows you to move from one place to another instantaneously. Uh, with alternate reality, here's what I thought about LSD as the, as the favorite technology. My favorite with college students, it's better not to uh, talk about that. But it's really, but it's, there it's telepathy, it's making those connections. Uh, in some way within your own mind. Uh, with real virtuality, it's that desktop fabrication that I talked about, that's what it's about. And then finally, with virtual world, you know, it's the metaverse, it's the holodeck, it's the matrix. That's the, the, the technology uh, that is about that. So I don't know if the, uh, being able to see those all at once helps at all. I realize that this is an incredibly you know, dense framework to think about, um, but it's one that I think will have some, some uh, use, again, in exploring the possibilities of what all is out there that you could then apply to using technology and media to, to create experiences. And, and, and one of the other things before we run out of time is to say, you know, my email address, bjp2 at AOL.com. Give me any feedback, any thoughts, any other examples that come to mind, you know, if this sticks with you and you're thinking about it over the next couple of days or weeks, then, then send me. Uh, 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 whatever thoughts you have on that, but in terms of now, with the last five minutes that we have, let me get your reaction. Stunned silence. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is actually just for recording purposes. <laughs> 
there's a lot of emphasis here, and obviously I can see why, on the idea of, of virtuality of objects that don't have a physical space, that don't take that up. Um, I guess part of what I was, I've been thinking about the idea, there's this thread in the way you've talked about, about experiences as escapism. And I'm wondering if there's something about the fact that even though we've got um, the beginnings of a lot of this, I don't think we're actually going to be leaving our bodies anytime soon. Right. And there's something... I'm jacking in. Right, right. <laughs> not, not completely leaving, leaving the meat bag behind, but there's, there's a level at which the, the physical does tend to matter. The real-life store really does matter. And right. That Starbucks isn't, isn't going to go away in favor of virtual coffee. They may, it may expand, it may create new things, and there's definitely new markets that will open up and all that. But I guess um, it seems really tied to me to the, this idea of thinking of experiences as escapism, which fits the E model, but as opposed to something like reflection or getting, there's a, there's a level of abstraction, but sometimes, for me at least, it, it returns back to the real world to meet space. The, the, you know, the books I've read, it's not just escapism, at least I, I'd argue that with people, but that it's a way of understanding the world, that the real life, right. a bit more. And that's something I mean, I'm thinking about other movements, like environmental movement, that yeah. seems so focused on, on the, the, where the commodities come from and all that. And it just seems like that's a dimension that like, this model could encompass more. Um, but I, I don't see a space for it, that's something Personally, I'm left thinking about where it tries to fit. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I think a lot of this is, in fact, escapism. Uh, it's a good observation. The one, the one that, I mean, a couple that aren't, um, obviously, I means one is the real world is more about education. The real world is more about learning about what is, in fact, going on. For example, the environmentalists, I think, will begin creating real worlds of the of the Amazon rainforest. And, and, and it's one thing to talk about it, you know, about deforestation and that sort of thing. It's another thing to go into a place and be able to see physically trees being lopped off and gone. And anybody in the world can do, virtually anybody in the world can do that inside of Second Life or inside of some other virtual world that you create where you now have this, this, this much more visceral uh, 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 reaction to it versus, versus just getting the information about so many acres being lost every year and so forth. Now I can experience that, and that's one of the things that a, that a real world would do. And the real virtuality is one is about creating physical representations of what you, uh, you know, can can otherwise only experience online. And I'm not sure that's any at all <laughs> in, in, in that regard. But interesting, interesting notion. Um, so taking it back to some of the work that you do with companies, yep. um, certainly something to do with the Emergence Culture Consortium, as you know, and something you know that's I think of interest to a lot of people, is how you take these ideas and uh, bring them to a company, and how a company would use them to create sort of very unique experiences. I think, I mean, my, my sense is that the advantage here would be to create some kind of competitive advantage for companies right. that, that take up this sort of framework. I was wondering if you could speak to you a little bit about um, how companies would, uh, you know, sort of figure out what elements to use, and then how they would know that they were successful using those elements. Uh, on the on the on the first one, uh, I'm not sure yet. The first time I'm going to present to companies is Wednesday. Uh, uh, my work on this was sponsored by a company called New Paradigm Learning Corporation, 
uh, and uh, I'm speaking to their clients on Wednesday with one of the fellows that, that work with me on this to be able to explain and see what their, their reaction is. But yeah, but again, it's about it's about seeking out possibilities, seeking out things that people aren't doing. You know, there are very few mirror worlds. There's very little real virtuality. There's very little augmented virtuality. There's a lot of of stuff going on in the real world, obviously. There's a lot more stuff going on in virtual worlds. So seeking out how you might um, uh, go um, um, use these as, as, as pretext for coming up with new ideas as, as the basic idea. And I also think that if you um, go back over here, one of the things, if you think about your transmedia storytelling again, well, I think you've got what I call transversal experiences. We've got experiences where you can wind your way through this in some pattern, you know, in the same way. And I don't know what that pattern might be or what the goods, but where, where you know, you know alternate reality games try to do this a, to a little bit, but where you've got a real-world experience, but now how do you combine that with a virtual-world experience? Well, like what you said earlier about playing games together. Right, it's a more engaging experience when you're in the same room being able to yell at each other than it is if you're in a distant room, only on the phone, or only I am, and having no communication with who that is. Right, that's a different sort of experience. So it says, let's combine these two in some way. Now, let's, you know, these three are, are how you might go about it. And again, you know, it's very early in figuring out what, any prescriptions whatsoever. And going about doing the closest I've got is that, you know, is those ways on that side. Well, if you want physicality, go here. If you want exploration, go here. If you want uh, sensory feedback, if that's involved, then go here and so forth. That's the very beginnings of, of any sort of, of prescriptive. But, but at least now we can begin to be descriptive. We can identify for experiences we're talking about, for technology that we see, you know, here's where it goes. And that's the beginning of thinking about, okay, then when might you want to use that? You know, descriptive in my mind always leads to prescriptive. Does that mean we're done? <laughs> All right, well, it is 5.30, so we can, we can, 6.30, excuse me. That's why I didn't think it was done. My wife, I'm still in Minnesota. All right. So well, I just want to say you know, thank you for uh, the time. Uh, again, it's the first time I've, I've described that to anybody. I probably didn't do a very good job. But what I hope, uh, you don't have to say yes so quickly, Sam. Uh, but what I hope uh, is that it sparks some thinking in your own minds. That you begin to, to you know, maybe think about how this might work, how it might relate to your own studies, particularly in the, in the comparative uh, media studies uh, diagram. But again, there's my contact information. Give me a call or send me an email. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on this and if you relate it all uh, to, uh, to what you're doing. Thank you. All right, thanks for your time.